0: Episode 180, The Wounded.
1: Welcome in to yet another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray.
2: And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a hard look at an episode of Star Trek, watching it for morals and meaning and messages, and seeing whether the episode bears scrutiny today.
1: We do more than that, though. We also tell you how to get in touch with us. We do trivia. And when we're not being forgetful, we tell you the name of the episode that we're covering. It's The Wounded, by the way. We're covering The Wounded. <laughs> good
2: As good. for... <laughs> what? Thank like goodness. That? Little... Just, yeah, I'm really... I'm... Really pleased that, that we managed to get it in there in yeah. such a uh, such a, a smooth, yeah. efficient way. Yeah, it
1: was a little yeah. nonchalant. It was it was it was somewhere between forgetful and Ted Knight or uh, Ted <laughs> Ted Baxter, excuse me.
2: Yeah, is well, the wounded? By, by, by Knight, the way, was, we're doing the wounded. Yeah, yeah. of course he, he, he had a guest bit on TAS. So did nice he really?
1: There. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The, uh, that's right. Of course he did. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but you know, go back and listen to TAS. That's the animated series, by the way, for those of you who skipped the cartoons. Uh, so let me do one of the things that I said we do, where you get in touch with us, or I tell you how, and then John's going to do trivia, then we're going to do a show. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you. The phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is at com. Our show website, including discovered documents and places to leave comments and... Past episodes of Mission Log can be found at missionlogpodcast.com, and please do remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, and I got to apologize, I feel like I'm actually giving things short shrift when I said we're going to do how to get in touch with us, and then we're going to do trivia, and then we're going to do a show. No, 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 no. Show starts now. Okay. Everything (laughs) up to this point is preamble. This show starts with trivia.
2: Okay, well, maybe it was a little bit of a rush because Because there is so much to discuss in this episode. Today's episode, The Wounded, was written by Stuart Charno, Sarah Charno, and Cy Chermak. Now, those are the three people who contributed to the storyline of what we see here in The Wounded, uh, but let's take them in order. Stuart Charno is primarily an actor, but he has three writing credits, all of them Star Trek, and with this one being his first. As an actor, he has appeared in Friday the 13th Part 2, MASH, the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, and the woefully underrated it's your move now at the time stewart was married to sarah cooper sarah charno credited here as sarah charno she continued as a writer on many shows chicago hope the x-files the first lara croft tomb raider movie many of her writing credits overlap with credits with her as co-executive producer of many of those shows And finally, Cy Chermack worked as a writer on a number of classic TV shows, The Virginian, Ironside, Chips, and, Ken, a little show called uh, Kolchak, The Night Stalker.
1: Kolchak, The Night Stalker.
2: Yeah, I never heard of it, right? No, I haven't
1: heard of that one. No, I'll I'll look into it, though.
2: Look into it, please. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, now, they were the ones who wrote the story. The teleplay was actually written by Jerry Taylor, who we have discussed. And uh, this episode was directed by Chip Chalmers, who we have also discussed. And the original story outline is from the summer of 1990. Uh, Miles O'Brien was not yet married in that draft, but he was dating Karina. And that scene that we mentioned last week in the replicator shop would have actually been in this script where Miles was looking for a gift for Karina. We also would have had a Miles and Deanna Troy scene in which he tried to work out his feelings about the Cardassians. But other than that, the Phoenix is the same. Captain Maxwell is the same. But what isn't the same is the ending, Maybe I'll come back to that the further we get along in our discussion. There are many deleted scenes and extended scenes which made their way to the Blu-ray set. Uh, Most of these are extensions of existing scenes like Picard telling his crew to be nice to the Cardassians before they beamed on board. Uh, A couple of other moments may actually change or add to interpretation of the story. So like I said, I'll kind of save those for discussion later in the show. In the notes that came back from the research department, those are sometimes fun to read, uh, but particularly about this script, it was pointed out by research that the transponder code would be internally consistent with what had been established in the Wrath of Khan, i.e. the prefix code, which was a much better idea than the alternative of just emitting a frequency out into space, since, well, that could be figured out by just about anyone. Let's talk about the guest stars. We have Bob Gunton as Captain Benjamin Maxwell. Here's a guy with a massive career in TV, on stage, and in film. Just a handful of highlights include roles in Glory, born on the 4th of July, uh, Patriot Games. He was the warden in the Shawshank Redemption. Hmm. I was amused that he played President Nixon in the TV movie Elvis Meets Nixon. And <laughs> um, he had recurring roles on 24. Daredevil and the very weird and very funny Greg the Bunny on IFC. He is an army veteran having served in Vietnam. He was actually drafted, uh, went to Vietnam. And interestingly, in addition to playing Nixon, he also played Woodrow Wilson and FDR. He's got a thing for authoritative figures. Speaking of authoritative figures, we welcome back Mark Alimo here as Massette. We saw him before in Lonely Among Us. As I'm sorry. Well as I'm
1: sorry. Hang on a second. A little respect. Gull Masset.
2: Oh, oh, well, I didn't know we were being so formal. Well, I mean,
1: the man has a title. He didn't go to gull school for nothing, mister.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> gull. <laughs> Was set. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we saw him before in Lonely Among Us, uh, and he was also portraying a Romulan in The Neutral Zone. Did I mention back then that he was also in The Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, and he was also in the original Total Recall? Uh, you can also throw those in with recurring roles in Hill Street Blues, guest Shots on T.J. Hooker, Six Million Dollar Man, Beretta, and Police Story. Uh, Well, I'm sure I mentioned then, as I will mention now again, that since he first appeared, he will be around a lot more. Marco Rodriguez here as Cardassian Glenn Telly uh, was seen before as the avatar of Riker's old Captain Paul Rice that was in the Arsenal of Freedom, and Time Winters, his birth name Timothy, but he's called Time, is one of those constantly working character actors. He was in Gremlins 2, Thinner, Defending Your Life, Sneakers, uh, TV appearances in Carnival, Babylon 5, Dream On, MacGyver, and more. Here he is playing the thirsty Cardassian Glendaro. Ah. Mm-hmm. The
1: friendlier yep. of the two.
2: The friendlier, yes. Okay. Friendlier and thirstier because, you know, you can let down your guard when you're having a drink. And finally, John Hancock, uh, not the founding father, but the actor here portraying Vice Admiral Hayden. We saw him before in The Defector. Uh, But before that, he had recurring roles on Hardcastle and McCormick, Family Ties, L.A. Law. He passed away too young from a heart attack at the age of 51 in 1992.
0: The Federation has a brand new enemy with which it is already at peace. Maybe. Let us see if Ken can explain.
1: Prologue. Enterprise is running a mapping operation along the Cardassian border. The Federation and the Cardassians have had a peace treaty for about a year now. While they wait to be contacted by the inevitable patrol ship, Captain Picard is entertaining the bridge crew with the story of the last time he was in Cardassian space running for his life, having had his hindquarters handed to him. (laughs) Those were days. Worf says the Cardassians have no honor and that he does not trust them. Counselor Troy counsels Worf. You have to trust them. They are our allies now. The Worf says, trust is earned, not given away. Picard just wants them to hurry up and make contact. The longer they're here without that, the dicier things become. Hey, let's check in on the newlyweds. Keiko and Miles O'Brien are enjoying breakfast. Well, Keiko is, anyway. A breakfast of traditional Japanese foods that have already grown tiring to Miles. He'll replicate her a good old-fashioned Irish meal tonight. Ah, young-ish love... The two are on the verge of canoodling when the ship is jolted, and red alert is called. On the bridge, we see the source of the disturbance. Remember that Cardassian scout ship we had hoped to find? We found it, and it's refusing to answer hails and firing on the Enterprise. It's not like it's doing damage, but it is firing. Or it was, until the Enterprise fired a few times, knocking out the scout ship's shields. Oddly enough, Gul'maset, captain of the Cardassian ship Traeger, is ready to talk now. Picard wants to know why the Cardassians fired on the Enterprise. There's a treaty between the Federation and the Cardassians. Gulmisset says that ended when a Federation starship destroyed a Cardassian science station a couple days earlier. Picard says the two sides have worked too hard at peace to abandon it so easily, though Gulmisset says it wasn't his side that abandoned it. Okay, says Picard, give me one hour to talk to my superiors and find out what the heck is going on, or, you know, I can just go ahead and blow you out of the sky. Gulmisset agrees to the one hour. And we finally head to the opening credits. Act one. Well this is surprising. Starfleet confirms Gulmaset's story. The Phoenix, under the command of Captain Benjamin Maxwell, totally destroyed the Cardassian science station. No one knows why. He's not answering any hails, running silent, though still believed in Cardassian space. Picard has new orders. Find Ben Maxwell, stop him from shooting up any more Cardassians, and preserve the peace, no matter what the cost. The Cardassians have granted the Enterprise safe passage, provided they take along a delegation of Cardassians. That'll be Gul Massett and two of his aides. Worf wants the Cardassians to be accompanied by a security detail, though Picard says that's no way to treat guests. However, Picard is cool with stepped-up security around some of the ship's more sensitive information and equipment. By the way, Data. Has anyone on the Enterprise served under Ben Maxwell before? Turns out O'Brien has. You remember him. From breakfast? Picard will want to talk to him later. Picard tells Riker and Troy to let O'Brien know when they greet the Cardassian delegation. Gulmaset beams aboard with his aides, Glendaro and Glentelli. They meet Riker, Troy, and Transporter Chief O'Brien, who seems fine with the Cardassians, though the empath Troy picks up something disquieting from the Transporter Chief. Act Two They're looking for the Phoenix, though Gulmaset is skeptical. The Enterprise is hunting as hard as it can for one of its own. Picard assures the Cardassian that they are. Heck, that's why you're here. By the way, you remember Chief O'Brien? From breakfast? I'm sorry, from the transporter room? He actually served under Captain Maxwell. Chief, I understand Maxwell's family was killed by a Cardassian raid on a civilian outpost. What can you tell us? O'Brien says it wasn't a raid so much as sabotage by the Cardassians. That pretty much seals it for Golmaset. This is revenge for the death of Maxwell's family. Such an accusation riles Miles, though Picard calms the table. Let's stick to the facts, not speculation. Follow-up question. Oh, cut short. Wharf pipes in from the bridge. Long-range sensors have found the Phoenix. Picard and Gul head to the bridge, while O'Brien and the two Glens head to the turbo-left. One of the Cardassians tries to make small talk with O'Brien. Your captain is impressive. Yep. Can you tell me about your transporter technology? Not without my chief engineer's permission. Want to get a drink? Look, I may have to work with you, but I don't have to hang out with you. O'Brien out. On the bridge to set of course for the Phoenix Warp 6. Colmissette has an idea. We've got a lot of ships near there. Why don't you give us Maxwell's exact location and the way to track his secret decoder pattern, and we'll, um, intercept him. That's a non-starter for Picard. Remember that traditional Irish dinner Miles promised Keiko? Yeah, she's about as receptive to that as he was to breakfast. Really, though, what's being served is a helping of know thyself. Miles says he was amazed how many people in the meeting earlier still actively dislike the Cardassians. I mean, come on. War's over. It takes roughly one question and one look from Keiko for Miles to realize he may have been one of those people at the meeting. Back on the bridge, see that blue dot? That's the Phoenix, still not responding to calls from the Enterprise. And see that red dot? That's a supply ship, about to be blown up by the Phoenix. Gul is bothered. Apparently Starfleet can read Cardassian secret decoder patterns. Widening sensors, they can see that there are other Cardassian ships closer to the Phoenix than the Enterprise. Finally, still receiving no reply from the Phoenix, Picard lets the other Cardassian ships know where the Phoenix is. Act 3. Armed with the exact location of the Phoenix, a Cardassian warship closes in and is destroyed by the Phoenix. The Phoenix then destroys the supply ship it was originally pursuing. The red dots, representing 650 Cardassians, disappear from the screen. The Enterprise increases speed. It's now moving to intercept the Phoenix at warp 9. Picard is finally taking time for that one-to-one talk with O'Brien. What do you think's going on with Maxwell? O'Brien says there has to be a reason for what he's doing. Those Cardassians were up to something. O'Brien doesn't think this is a series of revenge missions though he is surprised to hear that Maxwell just killed another 650 Cardassians. He still thinks they must be up to something, though Picard says he thinks when one has been angry for so long, one forgets feeling any other way. And once again, O'Brien comes face to face with his feeling for the Cardassians. Sipping his sorrows in Tenford. O'Brien spots one of the glens, the nicer-seeming of the two. They start to share a friendly drink, but that doesn't last long. O'Brien is carrying a boatload of hurt, having been on Setlit 3 with Captain Maxwell the day after Maxwell's family was killed there. The Cardassian says that that was a mistake. They were told that the outpost was a launching place for a massive attack against the Cardassians. Here's the thing, though. The next day, the Cardassians were still walking through the streets, killing whoever was left. O'Brien ended up killing a Cardassian. He had never killed anyone or anything before, and he can't go on drinking with this one. Getting up to leave, he says, "'It's not you I hate, Cardassian. "'I hate what I became. "'Because of you.'" On the bridge, Warp's dragging in the other glen. The security chief caught the Cardassian on an Enterprise computer trying to access information on the ship's weapons. The Cardassian says he was studying the terminal, not the weapons, though Gulmisset says he shouldn't have been accessing any of it. The aide will be confined to his quarters for the rest of this episode. In private, Galmaset apologizes for the actions of his underling. He assures Picard that the aide will be punished in due course. Picard says that's up to Galmaset. As far as he's concerned, it's done. The most important thing is that the action of no one individual wrecked the peace between their two peoples. Galmaset says he is not one who craves war, and he's beginning to think that Picard isn't either. The lasting peace begins here, says Galmaset, with the two of us. This moment cut short by a message from Data. They will intercept the Phoenix in twenty-two minutes. Act four. Time sure flies when you're watching commercials. Back from break, and the Enterprise is on top of the Phoenix. Maxwell is much more talkative once the Enterprise is in his side view mirror. He's agreed to come on board to talk to Picard. After a friendly meeting with Riker and a pre filled reunion with and for O'Brien, Maxwell goes to meet with the captain. In Picard's ready room, Maxwell says he's glad it's Picard, they sent after him. Someone who gets what's really going on out here. Picard says he knows of nothing that would justify Maxwell's actions, so Maxwell lays it on him. The Cardassians are arming again. He can smell it. And that science station he destroyed? That was no <laughs> science station. It was a military transport station placed at the jumping-off point into three Federation sectors. And all those supply ships? Military supplies. Come on, Picard, you get it. Picard says Maxwell should have reported his suspicions to Starfleet, but Maxwell says there was no time. Lives were at stake. Picard says Maxwell has brought them to the brink of war, though Maxwell says he's prevented war, or delayed it for a long good while anyway. Maxwell says the peace treaty was a ruse on the part of the Cardassians to give them time to regroup, but Picard says he thinks this is all about revenge against the Cardassians for the massacre of Maxwell's family. Maxwell disagrees and calls Picard a fool. You want proof? Let's find a Cardassian supply ship, search it, then we'll see who's right. But Picard has had enough. He will let Maxwell go back to his ship, turn his ship around, and come with him to Starbase 211. Picard will permit Maxwell the dignity of retaining his command during the return trip, or he can ride it out in the brig with the Phoenix being towed in the tractor beam of the Enterprise. Maxwell agrees, and with that, Picard turns his back on Maxwell. Act 5. Surprise! Maxwell kind of goes off the rails again. The two ships are on their way out of Cardassian space when the Phoenix hangs aright. The Phoenix is headed straight for another Cardassian vessel. Colmaset figures it's another supply ship. The Phoenix is still not responding to hails, but good news. When it catches up to the Cardassian ship, it does not destroy it. it hasn't even powered up weapons. Data can't tell whether the Cardassian ship has powered its weapons. The ship is running with a high-density subspace field. Maxwell hails the Enterprise. He tells Picard to board the Cardassian ship. He'll see that everything Maxwell has been saying is true. Picard says no. He orders Maxwell to beam over to the Enterprise, but Maxwell ups the stakes. Board the Cardassian ship, or I'll destroy it. Picard is going to have to destroy the Phoenix, and he prepares to do so. Though O'Brien says he would like to transport over and talk to Maxwell. Though he can get through their shields, no problem. He is transporter chief, after all. One make it so later, and O'Brien is on the Phoenix. It goes about like you'd expect. Maxwell says the Cardassians live to make war. O'Brien says the Cardassians probably feel the same way about the Federation. Despite his calm demeanor, it becomes obvious that the death of Maxwell's family at the hands of the Cardassians is... ...motivating him to some extent. Realizing he can't win this one, Maxwell turns command of the Phoenix over to his first officer... ...and transports to the Enterprise for the trip back to Starbase 211. O'Brien, Picard and Gulmasette are in the conference room. O'Brien tells Picard that he knows that what Maxwell did was wrong, but he was a good man, and O'Brien is proud to have served with him. When O'Brien leaves, Gulmasette says O'Brien's loyalty is admirable, even if it's misplaced. Picard cautions Gulmaset against being so dismissive. Maxwell earned that loyalty. Oh. And Maxwell was right about the Cardassians being up to something. There is no point in a science station in the location that Maxwell destroyed, but it would be an excellent military transport point. And those supply ships running with high-density subspace fields? Those fields are obviously meant to shield what they're really carrying. So why didn't Picard board the ship as Maxwell suggested? Because Picard was there to keep the peace. A peace in which Picard believes. A peace that would have ended had he forced himself onto the supply ship. Take this message to your leaders, gull We'll be watching. And with that, Picard turns his back on the Cardassian. The end.
2: Ah, chilling. Chilling Gull-Ray.
1: Thank you, thank you. I No, dude, I didn't go to Gull, soup, uh, gull school, rather. Please, <laughs> just call me Glenn.
2: Okay, Glenn, Glenn-Ray. I like that, The Glenn is I, sort of... The, the Glens, the...
1: yeah, I thought about calling them, yeah. you know... Either Glenn Livett and Glenn Fedick mm, mm-hmm. or Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross. Because mm-hmm. already yeah, I don't that... remember their names. Plus, you never hear them called by their names. They're just like, oh, here, and here are these guys. But neither one even shakes hands. They're like Glenn yeah, 1 right. and Glenn 2. I mean, that really is all yeah. they
2: are. I had a thought as you were reading that. Um, I, I kind of wish that this episode were maybe a two-parter or something. Because I, I really wanted to know what was going on with the rest of the crew on the Phoenix. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Was there any, you know, maybe for some, there, there was maybe some murmuring of mutiny. Hey, our captain is off the rails. Maybe we shouldn't be firing on these ships, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also thought there's some first officer there who is just steps away from the captain chair. And, you know, Picard gives Maxwell an ultimatum. He, he says, OK, you can either ride back in the brig Mm-hmm. Where he said, "We'll give you the dignity of, of captaining your own ship back to starbase, or you can get in the brig, and we will tow your ship." And I'm thinking, like, there's a first officer going, "Hey, hey, I can fly the ship. I can <laughs> do this. I'll, I'll go. I'll follow orders." Yeah. You know? Well, the problem I'm not is insane.
1: He might have been following orders a little too closely, though. Yeah i yeah, I, I, yeah, I would yeah. like to I would like to I would kind of like to read the book or maybe the short story about this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. did Maxwell lie? And say, no, we've got secret orders from Starfleet, so don't worry about it. Ignore all Uh, the hails, because not everybody knows this is a top secret thing. It's just us out here. Or, you know, has he gone off the rails that much? I mean, look at it, though. Like, once O'Brien hears that he's just going into Cardassian space, shooting other Cardassians, O'Brien's like, nah, nah, something's up. (laughs) Because I understand he's breaking every law and risking, you know, galactic peace. But no, come on, this is Captain Maxwell. There's got to be a reason. So maybe he just inspires right. that kind of loyalty. I don't know.
2: Maybe he does. All right. Uh, let's talk about more important things. Um, Miles O'Brien, you may remember him from breakfast.
1: I do. You know, I do.
2: <laughs> Seriously, this breakfast. Thing. He was great all at right. breakfast. Yes, he, he is. He is. Did, did Keiko and Miles never grab a bite to eat before they got married? Was this an arranged <laughs> marriage? Because I'm starting to lose all hope. <laughs> yeah, I begin to wonder,
1: actually, I begin to wonder if Data just introduced them like the week before Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm that's why i don't know how to talk to him i don't know how to talk to her what's the stuff she's eating uh
2: (laughs) right right
1: i mean i i I I hope they work it out
2: i do too yeah i do too yeah it's a kind of literary shorthand because it's a tv episode it's not real life i get it but i think it's interesting to bring up in the context of star trek um this is the ideal melting pot 24th Century, mm-hmm. But it's a weird kind of melting pot. It's a melting pot where the individual ingredients are still very distinctive. Um, y- y- you know, everybody works together. Everybody gets along. Everybody has common purpose. But everybody maintains very distinct uh, cultural identities you know, uh, Picard loves to talk about France and the other people on the bridge are like, what's a France? <laughs> what is this thing yeah. you're talking about? You know, but but he's aware of it. It's an important part of his history. And then here's Miles O'Brien could not be more Irish if you tried saying like, well, we, we eat corned beef and potato casserole and all of these things. He's laying it all out. And I was kind of thinking that, This is interesting to me because especially now with the frequency that everybody in 21st century, at least in the United States, eats food of all other ethnicities. right? (laughs) You would think that this would be kind of a natural and common thing in the 24th.
1: Yeah, I imagine everybody on the Enterprise actually eating breakfast burritos.
2: Oh god absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, the twenty fourth century is better than I thought.
1: There is something kind of weird and maybe it's like a lovely sort of like, Oh well we're a family now, so you know, we share these things, but they have replicators. It's not like it's not like Keiko is cooking traditional Japanese breakfast for her and Miles is like, Well, I'll have eggs. Right, you know, with with ham right. on them or you know, whatever. Yeah. And it's very strange that you know she's replicating, but she's replicating for two now. Mm. When she could just as easily, <laughs> you know, replicate for herself and then say, You know where the replicator is
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, right. When he says, I don't want to eat that. Yeah, computer, I'll have a bowl of cornflakes and also the Chateaubriand for two. (laughs) (laughs) You know?
1: For breakfast? breakfast. Actually, I love her whole thing. Like, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, when my mother cooked, it was great. Your mother cooked? yes well like with with food? Yeah, it was kind of, that was actually a very neat, neat kind of thing. And, uh,
2: that was an interesting thing. Her responding, ooh, "She touched meat. She touched uh, oh. meat.
1: Yeah, but then yeah. you know, Miles has got the same sort of thing. I mean, his mother was like the um, was like the um, was like the Leonard McCoy of the 24th century. Mm-hmm. He didn't like being in a in a transporter, or I guess like the uh, like the Doctor Pulaski <laughs> of cooking. <Right. laughs> I suppose. Nah, no, I don't cotton very much with this new phone technology. No, give me an animal to kill, in right. 20 minutes, and I'll give you a meal.
2: I respect that. I mean, we we have the slow food movement today." So, yeah, you know, yeah, we'll get yeah. over that eventually. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of things that are slow, um, this is <laughs> the calculation that I made. Okay. How how long does the turbolift take? Exactly as long as the dialogue takes. Mm. That, that was a very long turbo lift ride and a very tense turbo lift ride. Also, nice of the Cardassians have been on board for about 10 minutes and they already know about 10 forward.
1: I think that's kind of awesome, actually.
2: Yeah, it's like they beamed in. Where do you get a drink around here?
1: That's what I want to do from now on.
2: <laughs> checking
1: in, sir, in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where's the bar? Okay, yes, checking in, please.
2: The Enterprise is so far away from the Phoenix, they can't get there. Mm hmm. Yet it's watching the attack in real time. Mm -hmm. And I thought subspace can do anything.
1: That was actually an amazing scene, I thought. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an incredible bit of writing and an incredible bit of direction. Because not only are you only seeing the tactical overlay. Because, you know, every week, I mean, we, we see a couple of ships, I guess, fired on or one ship fired on here. The Enterprise actually is fired on. Yeah. We see that. And every time we see it, it's sort of like you don't really get a clear idea of, you know, how many people are hurt or, you know, what kind of damage is being done or anything like that we have a combination of just this graphic thing. It's like, Oh, see that dot that's 600 people. And now yeah. that dot is gone. And yeah. that is 600 people gone. Plus if Brent Spiner has ever played data without emotions, he played it perfectly here. He's just giving a, a very dispassionate sort of blow by blow of, Oh, well, no, they're firing on that. And now that's gone. And now they're yeah. firing on that one. And now that's gone too. And I, right. I, that was, that to me was just an amazing, amazing scene. Uh, honestly,
2: it, it was, um, well, it was kind of that theatrical element, like uh, in plays, especially Shakespeare's plays. You know, the action takes place off stage. Yeah. Somebody gets stabbed off stage, but then the characters come out and react to it, and it felt like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was kind of a, a cool thing to see. Um, I was just thinking about you know the the time and distance that light travels, assuming light. But I think here we have to assume. Subspace going way, way faster than light because otherwise that battle could have taken place like a year ago. <laughs> they're just seeing, they're just seeing it happen on yeah. their uh, on their monitors. Y- um You know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no
1: Cardassian Empire, right? What? Yeah. I know. Okay. 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 I'll, I'll tell you about um, Riker sometime. I don't want to break your heart now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> please don't. Please yeah. don't. Oh, don't let this bleed over into Data either. Um, <laughs> How did Maxwell take the death of his family? Like a champ. He, uh, yeah, he took it well. <laughs> took it well, i.e. he lied to himself and is a wreck because of it. Star Trek, yet again, having trouble dealing with loss in the 24th century. This is this is a thing. This is a thing that happens. And more interesting than the fact that that's how it was, Miles is kind of clueless about this until Picard sort of spells it out for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I that was the more the more interesting part that Miles wouldn't say, oh, wait a minute, you know what, maybe he shouldn't take the death of his family quite so well. But boy, boy, was he stoic and always ready with a joke. Well,
1: how many people are walking up to Picard, though, after Best of Both Worlds going, feeling okay, Captain? Because that was mm-hmm. kind of a thing. You sure you're right. all right? I mean, what everybody's looking for is for the linchpin of everything that holds their ship together to be fine. Yeah, and so you know if if uh, if Maxwell's going to show up and be like I'm fine, everybody around him is going to be like Ah, thank goodness! Because man, we sail into battle with him, and he's not ready. We're boned, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, I mean he's right. I mean he's he's a, an exceptionally charismatic leader, is what we're given to think, and so yeah, you're right. If they were all sitting, if they were all you know, if this was the big chill, mm-hmm. then Miles would probably be like, No, seriously, you may need to talk to somebody. But you know, certainly on a, mili- <laughs> on a military or quasi military vessel, he's going to be like, You're good,
2: good. Yeah, don't talk about do we, feelings. Boy, do we need you to be good. Do not talk about feelings. Counselor, just pretend like she's not here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do like the way Maxwell is played. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort of reminds me of the comfort that we talked about uh, with Gary Lockwood on the original series and Where No Man Has Gone Before. He's at home. and it, it, Gary Lockwood was at home in that world and Ben Maxwell is at home in this world. And I also like that Maxwell is played that he's he's not decker from the doomsday machine he's sane and rational he's wounded he he is the wounded here mm-hmm. but he's someone who is credible you know and, yeah. and i think that's was really the fine line to play with that character and it's done exceptionally well
1: kind of love that actor too I, he's yeah. somebody whose name i've never gunton you said mm-hmm. yeah he's somebody whose name i've never known but every time you see him you're like oh okay this will be good yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, he really is he is a he is a hardworking actor. And when he shows up, I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen him in anything where I've been like, mm, I, I didn't believe him.
2: Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Um, the Cardassians had bad intelligence about Setlik. And well, maybe that's a phrase that'll come up again. Um, also, I, I loved hearing Miles's monologue uh, since we rarely ever deal with the reality of killing someone with a phaser. All I could think about was poor Yuta. Mm. Uh, but him ending that phrase, I hate what I became because of you, and that seems like something that could and should pop up every now and then. You know, uh, There there's, there are a lot of space battles where ships with unseen faces on them blow each other up, yeah. and they kind of let that slide. But there are also many times where somebody pulls out a phaser and vaporizes someone in front of them. Um, maybe in the most toys, that was something where we really built up to the idea that this is a dangerous and painful weapon, and then saw that play out but But the fact that um that miles would be affected by that where it's something that that in the in twenty fourth century and certainly by twenty first century standards it 's very clean it 's very efficient there 's no there 's no blood on the walls after that happens you know yeah. they 're yeah. just gone. They're just gone, you know. So it was interesting to hear him describe that. Um, it's a very little scene, uh, but the one with the Cardassian underling who got caught on an Enterprise computer and then confronted by Gul uh plays great again on a rewatch. Uh, strategic bit of fakery? What do you think?
1: Well... <sighs> I don't think so, but let me ask you a question. Why do you assume that when the friendlier of the two Cardassians says, boy, that was bad intelligence, we heard that it was a military something or other and you're like, Oh man, the Cardassians had bad intelligence and then this guy comes in and says, What? I was looking at the computer and you're like, Oh no, they were obviously up to something. I don't I mean, honestly, I feel like I feel like that could be reversed. I mean, maybe the mm. friendlier of the Cardassians, maybe, like, his level down, they really did think it was a bad thing. Although, why were they still walking around killing everybody they could the next day? Yeah, right. Once they get there and realize, oh, this was not the military jumping off point that we thought, plus, we actually killed, like, 90% of the people, but yeah. there's still 10% of the people, and maybe that's where the secret military thing is hiding. So, they're still trying to kill everybody when Miles gets there a day later, when Miles and Maxwell mm. get there a day later. Hmm. I honestly do think that the that the other one I'm not saying that that maybe that really was bad intelligence. who can say yeah. I honestly think that the one who was looking at the computer though was 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 taking initiative and 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 bad job on his yeah. part <laughs> right because right. I mean he really could have screwed everything up before they actually got to the part they wanted to get to right i mean that yeah. that might have been if if it were not if it were not Picard but some other captain. They might have gotten all tossed off the ship for the one infraction. So I, I yeah, really true. thought that was just him being, uh, him being stupid and getting his his comeuppance for it. I hope somebody remembers to let him out of his quarters by the end of the episode. By the way,
2: I, I think they would. Okay, good. Would. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just I, the more I rewatched that, I, I kept looking for something in the eyes of the actors to tell me if they were playing the other option there, mm. that that it was a little bit of uh, of, a, of a fake out, a little bit of a an understood spy action that they were doing but um yeah I, I think it plays either way yeah um hey question for you is it a step down for miles to be the best tactical officer on the phoenix to being the transporter chief on the enterprise
1: well he was the best tactical officer on the rutledge
2: Oh, in the Rutledge. You're, not you're on the Phoenix. Right. So we oh, don't, rut- we, we don't know.
1: <laughs> huh? Yeah, the Rutledge may be crap. It may be like, it may be like a garbage scowl <laughs> for all we know. Um, but, I mean, it's sort of like the whole thing with uh, with, um, with Riker, right? He mm. could be captain of the Melbourne, or he could be first officer of the Enterprise.
2: Right.
1: And, you know, he decides over and over again, he's going to be first officer of the Enterprise, because that's the best ship in the fleet. and It'd be better to be near the top, on the top ship, as opposed to the very top of, you know, one of 20 or one of 100 of its kind. Oh,
2: and, and that's Riker. And Miles is like, nope, I'd rather be alone in a room with no phasers.
0: The Commitments, The Snapper, Hell on Wheels. I am just saying, there is a lot to remember Miles O'Brien from, besides breakfast.
2: Some of the writing... And a couple of places, comes across as a little ham-fisted, but, but it, it's okay here. Miles is in the turbolift with the Cardassians and is being a royal jerk. Then he shows up at home and he tells Keiko about how he, he's over it, <laughs> but some people on the ship are not. Um, and, and I accept it being ham-fisted because it, it's a great little object lesson in being blind to one's own prejudice. Um, it, it is so telegraphed to the audience, but I think there's so much going on in this episode. I'm okay with a little bit of telegraphing. Can I can
1: I read part of the Bible to you? Preach on. <laughs> this is from the New International Version of the Bible, New Testament, uh, Matthew seven verses one through five. Uh, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that... I mean, yeah, it, it, it takes somebody from outside to point out to you that you're suffering from the same thing as somebody else. It seems to me. I don't like the use of the term hypocrite in that actually because it, it strikes me. I always picture that as like an idiot walking around with a board in his eye, saying, "Hey, let me help you," <laughs> and somebody else having to go, "Hey, wait a minute, dude, let somebody else help you first, and then you can talk about right. me." But when you talk about that 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 kind of blindness from one uh, and one's own prejudice, I mean, it was really fascinating to see Miles be so blind to that, and yet apparently it's something we've done for at least 1,700 years now or 1,800 years or however old you want to say the New Testament is. Yeah. um, 2,000?
2: (laughs) (laughs) However uh, many. Give or take.
1: Yeah, I mean, however old you want to say that is, apparently this is something that, you know, other people have been observing in people for a very long time. Now, of course, the funny thing is the guy writing that may have had a telephone pole sticking out of his head and somebody may have been like, hey, listen, before you send that out, (laughs) (laughs) and then you tell about the plank and then you tell about the sawdust and
2: we'll go on from there. yeah. No, but it's a nice scene, and it, it, it's it's not necessarily important to the political stuff going on around us, but but all the character stuff happening in the episode um, it, it is a really nice subtext. To everything that's going on. Um, one of the central ethical questions here is about preemptive war, and that is a term that we've heard in recent history. Speaking to you on a microphone in the early twenty first century. So is Picard right? And I thought, well, maybe it just. Kind of depends on the situation. I'm um, sorry. There are, is
1: Picard right or is Maxwell right?
2: No, it's Picard right. Okay. Is Picard right by what he does, because Picard, by the end of this episode, knows. Mm-hmm. At least he says he knows. to set said. And by the way, the, there is uh, an interesting edit um, in which Picard says in the episode at the very end, um, "We'll be watching." But the additional part of that line is, and we'll be ready, hmm. which sounds like, okay, we're we're building up for war. There's a deleted scene, um, and th- this is one of those that's uh, on the Blu-ray, uh, actually an extension of the scene in the ready room between Picard and Maxwell, in which Picard really holds Maxwell to admit that he has no documentation. Of anything that's been going on, and we really drive home the point that it's just a hunch. I thought and that
1: was I thought that was made pretty clear in the cut that actually aired,
2: though. It, it, I think it's pretty clear too, but it, there is certainly more of it in okay. the uh, in the scene that's on the Blu-ray, where there is a, quite a bit more back and forth. Um, and Picard is, keeps pressing him for the idea. Okay, you're you're saying this, but where's the documentation? Where did this come from? And he says, okay, so you don't have any, so this is a hunch. Okay. And then that's where the scene picks up with, uh, w- with what we actually see. Um, there are situations, I think, where you could point to intention, but if no crime is actually committed, then you have to ask what is our, our moral or political obligation to step in. There's an important piece of historical context here in that the Gulf War which had started on January 16th, 1991. This episode aired January 28th, 1991. So this is, you know, a week later, just ripped from the headlines. Now, Jerry Taylor had been working on this since, uh, as far as I could tell, the first draft that I saw was in the summer of 1990. But, we are anticipating the build up that that led into January of one thousand
1: nine hundred and ninety one i 'm not sure forgive me i 'm not sure I see the connection though I, no. I, would, I would say that the second Gulf War was a preemptive war right yep. uh, which and, and and you can say whatever else you want to about it, but let 's just say what we were told was that we were going to stop something worse from happening we 're going to go mm-hmm. ahead and invade so that we don 't have to, so the smoking gun doesn 't become a mushroom cloud okay so that 's what that yep. was. The yep. first Gulf War was, I mean, whether, whether w- depending on whose story you believe, basically, Iraq rolled into Kuwait. Correct. And we went in to push them back. Yeah. And so that's not a preemptive war. That's actually getting involved in a border dispute. Right?
2: No, no I, I, exactly. Yeah. I mean, not, not a preemptive war on our part. No. And, and uh, I'm kind of. Putting two different ideas here together, because okay. obviously we, we're, we're dealing with both. But I, I did want to provide that historical context because it's also part of that question of how much of this is our obligation to step in. I, you know, are, are we actually obligated to get into this border dispute between Iraq and Kuwait as it was and then stick around for a while? Now we went back, <laughs> obviously, when we start talking about the second go War. But yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. Just to clarify that point, All right. um, Starfleet tells Picard that he must protect the peace at any cost. That that is the the actual line that mm-hmm. uh, that, that Hayden delivers, um, which clearly means killing Maxwell or destroying the Phoenix. And I kept asking, what else could it mean? You know, what terrible lengths can be justified in protecting the peace? Um, destroying the Enterprise, sacrificing themselves, getting involved in a larger war. I mean, what, what are all of these other possibilities? But all of this that I looked at just seemed like it had the possibility of spiraling tremendously out of control. And, and aren't we lucky that we ended up with, um, with a, a measured response at the end? but it's certainly chilling that it's a measured response that leads you to believe that something could get far far worse before the end I want to jump back to this idea of uh, Miles having a little trouble getting over uh, what it is that he needs to get over shades of Captain Kirk and his problem getting over the Klingons um, maybe this was right around the time actually that Star Trek 6 was in production uh, when this episode was being made Hmm. and when it came out yeah Um, I, I kind of thought you know There's something about it that's a little bit difficult to relate to. I mean, I don't think it's entirely difficult to relate to, but I was thinking that you and I grew up two generations removed from World War II. Mm -hmm. And I always tried to imagine what it was like for people like my grandfather visiting Japan or, or Germany, some of our strongest allies today, but as someone who spent part of his adult life seeing them as only the enemy. Um, he actually specifically served in the Pacific, but, um, you know, on a similar note, I always had trouble reconciling politicians who held on to racist policies before I was born and then had to adapt to a world in which institutional segregation was outlawed. You know, so we, we do have this message here about forgiveness, but it's also tied to the message about forgetting, because um, I, I kind of thought that we would go mad if we didn't actually try to forget as well as forgive. You know, that that almost seemed to be, I, I, I think specifically in Miles O'Brien's case, mm-hmm. he's sort of intellectualized the idea of forgiveness, that this is over. But it seems like he's actually got to forget to be able to move on because this has seriously traumatized him. And he is unable to see the Cardassians until that moment that he's sitting in uh, Tin Ford, at least that's the start of it. That he's sort of unable to see them as other people that he can talk to and and potentially get along with.
1: Hmm. I don't know that there is anything about forgetting there. I think it's it's almost the contrary, exactly. I mean, he he has to... Hmm. It's not about accepting, I mean forgiving is one thing, accepting is another, right mm. and 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 forgetting doesn't work. Forgetting is what Maxwell tried to do. forgetting, I think, is what is what miles has tried to do as well, but the problem is he can't really forget it. He's going to come to terms with it. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying?
2: Well, yeah, I, I do. But, I mean, he, he's he got to come to terms with it, but he, he's, he's got to then move on. I mean, and that's what Maxwell has got to do as well. Maxwell never went through the part where he dealt with it. Right. And, and if he had, then perhaps he would get to the next point, which is move on. And-
1: yeah, but I don't think forgetting actually figures in there anywhere. Because, no? I mean, no, I don't think so. Because... Because then what's Miles left with? He's just I mean, if he forgets what they did, then he's just left with the fact that he killed a guy unless he's supposed to forget that he killed a guy as well. But that's not a thing you can ever forget. I'm always fascinated. And and I got I I know nothing about it, except I'm always fascinated when you'll see somebody from Vietnam as as somebody who was like a soldier in Vietnam or a commander Mm -hmm. in Vietnam, go back to Vietnam and meet the commander against whom he was fighting. Mm -hmm. And then they're like laughing. And they're not laughing about what happened, but they're laughing about the fact that they're 70 year old men now who survived this thing. And they had yeah. the same job. They had the same job for the same people. Not for the exact same people, obviously. You know, one guy right. commanded for, you know, his leaders. Another guy commanded for his leaders. They've not forgotten anything that they've done. And I would imagine that there are nights that both of them wake up screaming. But, yeah. I mean, they've, they, I mean, it, it happened and 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 not only have they not forgotten it they 're facing the fact that it happened, and hopefully you know finding some way to accept that it happened, even if you 're not like a fan of it, even if you 're not a fan of what you did yourself um, you you kind of got to go ahead and take it in otherwise you 'll never get past it i mean because yeah. it 's interesting what 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 happened to maxwell he 's right we 're given to understand in the end that he 's correct, but it 's also halfway through his talk with miles that we realize or that he realizes for the first time yeah you know even if i am right maybe i've gone a little unhinged because i haven't dealt with all the other stuff right mm-hmm. you know they they kill women and children children who never got to grow up okay yeah ta-da <laughs> we, we finally hit that place where he's not going to be cracking wise with somebody in the next minute he's actually going to be dealing with the fact that this bad thing happened and that's Forgetting, it seems to me, would be the absolute worst thing that you could do. Because then the other question is, the next time somebody rises up and says, hey, I got an idea, let's kill everybody. You need memory. You need somebody who remembers how bad that went the last time so you can go, hang on a second. (laughs) Let's (laughs) not do that because it never ends well.
2: Well, I don't want you to misunderstand that I'm advocating forgetting as a matter of just sort of like uh, erasing history. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I, what I'm talking about is the idea of forgetting, in the way that um, that that is not the thing that comes to mind when when seeing that other person. So, going back to this example that you brought up with, you know, Vietnam era uh, commanders from from either side—you mm-hmm. know, you have an American soldier, you have a Vietnamese soldier. You know, they can meet and they can laugh and they can look each other in the eye as human beings because they are forgetting the context. And again, I'm not talking about erasing history because that that is still there and they still know that that was there. But they can at least forget the context that would otherwise, I, I, I think, you know, could force a guy like Maxwell to only be so narrow as to see this other person as an enemy and nothing but an enemy for the entire remainder of his life Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i just want to be clear that i'm not
1: i didn't think you were saying erasing history i mean i i I didn't misunderstand that part i'm just uncomfortable with the with the with the term forgetting i think forgetting Mm -hmm. is what maxwell has been trying to do the whole time and Mm -hmm. and oddly enough
2: didn't go so well Yeah, well, clearly, yeah. Well, and uh, Picard brings it up, you know, when one has been angry for a very long time, one gets used to it like old leather. And finally, it becomes so familiar that one can't remember feeling any other way. That's the moment that he has to spell it out for Miles O'Brien.
0: With any luck, Healing has begun for Maxwell and O'Brien. So, what can we take away from the wounded?
1: Comes the time in the episode where we pose a few questions to ourselves and each other. Whether the episode holds up, whether the messages, morals, and meanings are, how'd we like it? (laughs) (laughs) The wounded, John, how'd you like it? No, I'm sorry, (laughs) let me be more... Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned?
2: Um, y- y- yes, and yes. Um, ah, man, I-, I think this is one of those episodes that you go back through and pick apart scene by scene, character by character, and just do such a deep dive about what is happening. The psychology alone of every character involved uh, O'Brien, of course, Picard, Galma Set, Captain Maxwell. I was riveted by every scene mm-hmm. except Breakfast. <laughs> except breakfast okay <laughs> uh, i'll give them a pass on that but i i think this is such this is what star trek does so incredibly well when it when it chooses to do that do, and star trek doesn't have to do the same thing over and over again but you take this story of political intrigue and political implications you know and, and in this case uh, you know world against world or, or in our case nation against nation however you want to phrase it mm-hmm. but then you make it about something personal and and then you start to raise questions about the, the ethics of what is involved who's making a right decision and is there really truly a right decision to make um, that's why we all know that what Maxwell doing is wrong, and we all know that Picard has to stop Maxwell from doing what is wrong. In the original draft of the story, the draft just ended with Captain Maxwell stopping what he was doing. So hmm. There wasn't that scene with Picard at the end. And I feel like I would have been really disappointed if we didn't have that scene. Because that scene drove home the reality of what was happening, that there could still be a threat here. But we have to be the better people. We have to make better decisions than to just go off and, and try to resolve this violently and unilaterally, that that is absolutely the wrong choice no matter what. Hmm. Um so I, I think there's so much to explore here. There are so many great ideas uh, encapsulated in this one episode. Absolutely, it holds up. Um, and I'd be happy to watch it again tonight after we're done with the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um How about you?
1: Well, there's one thing I have to say really quickly to what you said. We watch it and we all know that what Maxwell is doing is wrong. Um, Jack Bauer was on TV for eight or nine seasons. Mm-hmm. Jack Bauer was that character (laughs) Jack Bauer acted outside of law there have been a number of things over the past as we record this we're in what I hope will be the ugliest presidential race ever because I don't Mm -hmm. want to even think about one that could possibly be uglier yeah and you have people who are running for office right now advocating for going outside of law I guess they're operating under the Nixonian doctrine of if the president does it it's not illegal I don't know, right, right. but I mean, so you say we all know that what Maxwell's doing is wrong. I say, oh, don't ever change
2: because
1: <laughs> <laughs> we don't all know that. And that's one of the great things about Star Trek is it? you know, serves to hopefully remind us um, yeah. as far as do. I think this episode holds up a thousand times. Yes. Um, just in so many different ways, including I think we now have the best bad guys that we've had on next gen so far. Yeah. Cardassians are bad guys, and I don't even know what makes them bad. But they're obviously bad in ways that we have never seen the Romulans be bad. They're certainly bad in the way that the Ferengi were never bad. They're different than the Borg. And I know I said the Cardassians may be the best bad guys that we've had, but there are the Borg in Next Gen. Except I'm not convinced that the Borg are actually bad. We don't want what happens with the Borg to happen with the Borg, Mm -hmm. but they're driven by by some sort of um, almost... uh, evolution kind of thing, which is weird because they're technology, but whatever. Uh, Cardassians are just, they're just bad customers um, with great makeup and a menacing demeanor. we got a multifaceted story. Is Maxwell insane? Well, it turns out not, but that doesn't make his actions right and it doesn't mean he's not a little touched, you know, besides. Um, Especially since he doesn't actually know that what he's doing is correct. He doesn't know what Picard ends up deciding and and truly Picard doesn't know either, although Gulmasek kind of, uh, Kind of, you know, tips his hand in the end. Mm-hmm. Production was wonderful. The acting was great. The story was top notch. I think this is a fantastic episode. Um, I think there is more. Well, I'm gonna sort of. Well, hmm. Let me do this thing, this thing, and I'll come back to that. I thought okay. that. Uh, I thought that Maxwell was reminiscent of Colonel Jack T. Ripper from Doctor Strangelove. Sure. because yeah. y- you're like, yeah, yeah, Maxwell's insane. Well, not exactly. But Jack T. Ripper seemed sane at first. He's like, yeah, this happened. This happened. And then they stole my essence. <laughs> 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 oh, so it turns out you're crazy. Um, there's also a bit of a few good men, or uh, Maxwell reminds me of the Jack Nicholson character in that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. stuff's got to get done, and we're going to go ahead and do it, um, which, of course, is not a very Star Trek thing, but it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating character study. Um, as you mentioned, there's a bit of Star Trek Six here, and I love, I love the fact that he'll have a better uh, fate, I think, than Garth of Izar. But when when Picard says, if he could not find a role in peace, we can pity him, but we will not dismiss him. I love I, I love that. And it's the same sort of thing that the Klingon and uh, and Kirk talked about in Star Trek VI. Like, wow, we fight. That is what we do. And we're now moving into an era where we don't do that anymore. And I don't know what my place is in that. And unfortunately, it looks like maybe because of the family stuff or maybe because he can't get over the stuff with the Cardassians. Um, it looks like Maxwell is not going to make that transition. But he's not to then be shunned. I mean, he's, he's certainly not going to get a starship again. But, I mean, you know, he, he, did, he did what was asked of him. And, and unfortunately, went a little bit unhinged at the end. But that doesn't mean that we now, we don't erase the history, as you were talking right. about before.
2: Right, right.
1: As far as, if you don't mind my going into the message part a tiny bit, I think there's, no, like, there's at least yeah. an ounce of corbamite here. Maybe a little bit more. Um, Picard believes Maxwell but he's on the side of being who it is that they say they're going to be. And I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Picard realizes before he gets Maxwell to stand down, or before Miles gets Maxwell to stand down, that that ship is full of weapons. As soon as Data says that it's got a high-density subspace, whatever, mm-hmm. Picard looks over at Riker. He knows at that point. And at that point, he could have you know called them on their bluff, and, and that would be it, and peace would be over, and they'd be back at war, but at least he'd be Right. Except, you know, they're there to do what they say they're there to do. And also he's going to act within those rules. He's going to act within the rules that they've all set up. Until those rules change, he's going to be what he says they are. He's going to be what they say they want to be. Yeah, And that, I thought, was uh, was kind of a neat thing as well. So there you go. <laughs> what about you? Messages On the messages part, that is.
2: Yeah, no, well, I mean, we, we hit the thing about forgiveness, about... Uh, recognizing people as people, not as a collective enemy, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's sort of a problem that, that they're all sort of coming to grips with. So um, I think that's certainly valuable here. I, I wondered at a point if there was an unintended message underlying this, that our suspicions are real and that we should be careful, but maybe that's part of what Star Trek has said before, that, that you try to make peace and then you keep trying and keep trying even if you don't achieve it the first time or the hundredth time, you know, that Mm. the, the thing that you are suspecting it, it, there may be some grounding in reality there, but that doesn't mean that the right reaction is to start opening fire. You know, is that you find every diplomatic situation, every diplomatic opportunity possible. Um, And that's what Picard then is trying to do at the end. Now he's, he's laying down the law verbally (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. but he's uh, but he's not pulling out a phaser. Um, You know, Picard's line about being angry for a very long time, of course, is a great line. And and Maxwell is the worst of us. Here's Star Trek giving us a bad example in order to tell us what we should be more like. You know, it it will go back to you talking about the Corbinite maneuver. It's kind of that idea that. Maxwell has internalized and and changed into this person that he shouldn't be because we shouldn't be like that and Star Trek as a whole then says look don't be that guy don't be the guy who can only look at others as being bad as being the enemy as being something to be defeated and to be suspicious of Um, th- that impulse might feel right like revenge but that's probably not the right impulse at least not the right impulse to act upon so i think there's a tremendous amount here and i I think it all is valuable and certainly it all holds up and and fortunately it all holds up in an episode that holds up really well too i mean i I feel like we could stop recording now we could come back and we could do this whole episode again Mm -hmm. and then talk about entirely different stuff
1: yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this is this is yeah. uh, what's amazing to me is this is not an episode that you hear people go, "Oh, that one." You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't hear the kind of excitement about this episode that you hear about a lot of others, and yet this to me has been uh, this has been just an absolutely wonderful episode to start to finish, I thought. Yeah, and breakfast yeah. maybe not included. Although, you know, it did give <laughs> us the joke, "Hey, remember him from yeah. breakfast?"
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least we have that.
1: We'll Will always Have breakfast.
2: Yes. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Devils do.
0: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com.
1: Next week, Devils Do.
2: Devils Do what?
0: (laughs) Devils be all like... (laughs) and transmission